Mark chapter 12. Um, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. And just to catch you up, we have gotten Jesus to Jerusalem before the crucifixion. A few weeks ago, we talked about the triumphal entry where Jesus comes into the city and everyone is praising him, throwing their coats at his feet. Thousands upon thousands, could have been even millions, screaming, Hosanna, God save us. And yet once Jesus gets to the city and goes to the temple, he turns around and says, all of this looks really good. The praises of the people, the temple is magnificent. But it's like a, a fig tree. has lots of leaves on it, but no fruit. There's no fruit of repentance in Jerusalem. And so Jesus says, I'm going to take the temple, this mountain, this fake religion that is between God and man, and I'm going to remove it as I remove sin that separates us from God. And I will build something much better, a much better temple. And he pronounces judgment on the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. And today he tells us a parable about what this looks like, that he would come to his own people and he would be rejected, and yet the purposes of God will still be accomplished. And that's what we're going to look at in Mark chapter 12. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, I'm going to read verses 10 and 11 of this section of Scripture. We want to be a people of the word. That means when the word of God is read, when the word of God is declared, meditated on, reflected upon, we are mindful that this is our king speaking. It is not as if God is speaking. God is speaking through his word. So hear the word of Christ to you in these moments. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Oh God, even as we think today about the rejection of your cornerstone, Jesus, may we be able to stand back as your, as your church today and say it is marvelous. It is breathtaking that the one who came to save us has been rejected and raised from the dead and is ruling right now. It is a marvelous work that you allow us to be a part of. God, would we give our lives over to this work of making sure the nations know Jesus is the cornerstone. And it is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The word mine in our home had been, has been labeled profanity for some time now. Now when our kids were little, we just decided that we were not going to ever allow them to say mine about anything. Now we've all seen this. We've seen how children have the tendency to possess something, no matter what it is, a toy, a cup, anything, and they possess it. And they claim themselves owner over it at all costs. 
You see it in your home, even, even toys or things that your kids, they're not even touching, they don't have anything to do with, and they have a friend come over, or even an adult at times, and they will see them across the room touch something, and they will declare from across the room, mine! Now, Danae just, her personality, that wasn't going to be something that happened in our home, and she would say to our kids, have you ever given birth to anything? to a person or anything? Have you ever paid for an adoption? Have, have you ever paid for a mortgage? And our kids would look at her like, what in the world are those things? And she would say, well, nothing here is yours until you do some of those things. And she just committed, we're not going to allow that to happen. And Danae would often say, nothing here is yours. It all belongs to your dad. And because I'm married to your dad, it belongs to me too. But nothing in this home is yours. Even when grandparents would give them gifts and they thought they would, you know, get around this theology of mine in our home. And they would say, no, grandma gave it to me. It's mine. And we would say, take it back to grandma's house and it can be yours again. But when it enters our property, it is mine. And I let you use it. I let you benefit from it. I let you play with it. Now, this was embarrassing at times, especially when our girls were playing with little friends and they they would get back and forth with with little dolls or toys, girl toys, and, and maybe their friend would say, mine, and one of our girls would say, no, that's my dad's, speaking about a little toy, a little girl toy. But, but more than, than just this preference in our home, it, it's actually a theology lesson. Because the sin in Eden was the sin of Adam and Eve declaring mine to God. God had created this garden for them to live in, and it was his garden that they were to cultivate. And yet sin comes into the world by Adam saying, no, mine. And I will do whatever I want to in this garden. This tree that you have commanded me not to eat of is mine. And this is how sin comes into the world. And ever since then, we have been struck with the self-centered misery of claiming mine on things. It's not just sin. It makes you miserable to walk around in your life, to walk around and say mine about everything. There's insecurity in that. There's disappointment in that because you always don't get what you want and things that you get break down. You lose them. They rust. And so the things that you say mine to, sometimes you can't have and it creates self-centered misery in our life. Now yesterday, Titus comes into the living room with cookies and he says, whose cookies are these? And Danae turns to him and says, those are Anna's cookies. And I'm thinking, oh, I thought they were my cookies. Everything here is mine. But I guess for Titus, it was better than just eating them. And then he comes back into the room with yogurt. And yogurt is probably the only healthy thing I will eat. And so I said, that yogurt is mine. And I thought, you know, 20 years of discipleship. You know, and Danae stops me and says, Jeremy, you know, you know that anyone here can eat the yogurt and I'll just go buy more. And so I look at her and I say, hold on, like you have fallen off too with this. (laughs) The cookies and the yogurt are mine, 
right? I thought that's what, how we lived around here. But we, things change, I guess. And when we get to this passage, Jesus explains how things have changed with the religious leaders in the temple. Because the temple was given to them, and when the temple was first created and the holiness of God comes down, there, there is no doubt this is God's. And yet over time, these religious leaders, they, they have cultivated their glory in the temple to the point when the Son of God, the true temple, comes to claim what is His, they say, no, this is ours. This is mine. And here Jesus tells us the story of what that looks like. Notice verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. Now remember, Jesus is walking around the temple and he is teaching. This is Passover week. And he is walking around the courts. And it says here, he began to teach them in parables. Now, parables comes from the word that means to throw alongside. And a parable was usually a story that Jesus throws alongside the kingdom. It's a story that has imagery, that has allegory, that explains the kingdom. And in 39 parables in the Gospels, you will often hear Jesus say, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And he throws a story alongside the activity of the kingdom. Now, one of the purposes for the parables was to teach the disciples. He would say to them, to you, these stories, to, to everyone else, they, they are mysterious. They seem like secrets. But to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom. And so when I begin to speak in parables, you're going to understand I'm talking about the kingdom. And there are going to be all kinds of people around who don't get it. They don't understand it. And one of the purposes of the parables was to hide truth from those who were rejecting the kingdom. And so here Jesus is walking around the temple and he's teaching the kingdom is at hand. And he begins to teach in parables to teach his disciples about what is about to happen while the religious leaders who are there rejecting him, they may hear the stories, but they don't really understand what he's talking about. And so Jesus teaching, the crowds are gathering around, the disciples are there, the religious leaders are in the background, they're listening, they're trying to overhear. And notice he says, verse 1 continues, he begins to teach them in parables, and the kingdom of heaven is like a man planted a vineyard. And put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to its tenants and went into another country. And so Jesus begins to tell a parable about a man who planted a vineyard, a fully functioning vineyard. Imagine acres of vines that are to produce grapes, that are to produce fruit. Imagine a, a fully functioning system of operation to produce fruit and wine. There's a security fence around the outside. There's a tower to oversee it. And notice what he does. He leases it. He rents it out. Now, this was common in this time, especially around Galilee. You would have tenant farmers who farmed other people's lands, who cultivated the land. They would get some of what they cultivated, but ultimately it belonged to someone else. 
and they leased it out to them to work and to rent, but they did not own it. And so what is Jesus doing here? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel was often called God's vineyard. God chose her out of the world. He planted her in the world with a promise that came through Abraham that Israel would be his people. They would receive his blessings, his promises. He planted her in the world by choosing her and giving her promises. And then he hedged her out in the world by giving her the law. And he says, you're going to be holy as I am holy. You're going to be distinct from the rest of the world. And amidst her, he put the tabernacle and the temple, this tower of God's presence and glory in the world. Here, Jesus is talking about Israel. But God also gave his vineyard tenants to care for her. Priests who would oversee and teach the people of God and oversee sacrifice in the temple so that they could know God and experience God. They were to cultivate the fruit of repentance, the fruit of worship, the fruit of holiness in the world. Here, when he talks about tenants, he's talking about the religious leaders who stand around him trying to hear what he is saying. They all find their origin in the task of maintaining Israel's fruit of holiness before God. But the point Jesus is about to make is this vineyard, this temple, this religious activity, Israel, my vineyard is my vineyard and you're just tenants. God has leased it out to you, the religious leaders. God has given you a a task to care for her, but it's not yours. Verse 2, and when season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the owner sends a slave, a servant, a hired hand in to to get the grapes, to get the wine, to, to see what his vineyard has produced And instead of saying, here, we're we're so glad to see you. Look what all we've done in your vineyard. They take the servant, they beat him, and they kill him. Now, this would be a jarring twist to the story. You're to go, what in the world? That that comes out of nowhere. And Jesus is, is trying to give an edge here. He's trying to poke here. The most extreme thing the tenants could do is kill the servants. And so what does the owner do? Again, he sends another servant and they struck him on the head and they beat him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Notice how it just gets worse and worse. They beat, they strike, they shamefully kill servant after servant after servant. And this is the activity that we see with Israel in the Old Testament. As they drift towards sin, what does God do over and over? He sends prophets to call them to repentance. And one of the things we see in the prophets, they confront the priesthood over and over and over. Some of the prophets even tell the priest, just close the doors. Shut this thing down. This temple is an abomination to God. 
And what happens to the prophets? In Hebrews chapter 11, we see that some of them are exiled, tortured, killed. Some of them are sawn in two. They are beaten by the the religious leaders, by the priests. They are killed even by Israel at times for proclaiming the word of God. These are the servants that come and are killed by the tenants. Now, to begin with, we see that the owner's message, this vineyard is mine, invokes violence, sinful violence against the messengers. And we we can see that throughout history, not just in our Bibles, where even when we get to the New Testament, the apostles are killed for proclaiming the gospel. We, We see God stepping into the world and saying, no, this world is mine through messengers, through the word of God. And so often, what do we see? Governments, dictators, kings, they kill the messengers because they don't want to hear the message, God is king. And we begin to see here that the way the human heart is bent, mine. And so you can have a very word from God through a messenger, and you don't want to hear that word. And you say, no, mine, to the point violence occurs. The rebellion against God. No, this is our world. And so as those who claim to be messengers in the world with the gospel, we are witnesses. You should expect rejection. When you go into a situation and you are going to declare to someone you have a creator that you've rebelled against, and yet Jesus has come to die for your sin, but he is raised from the dead and he is ruler, and this world is his, and you try to proclaim that message, in the human heart, we're going to say, no, mine. And people are going to say, no, mine. I don't want to hear that message. And you're going to be alienated. You're going to be shunned. This is just what happens when the message that there is an owner of all things and we're only leasing, when that comes in, we're going to say mine. And so the question is not what the religious leaders in the history of Israel did. The question is not what your friends do when you try to share the gospel with them. The question for you today is what do you do when you hear the word of God? What do you do when you open up your Bible? The declaration of the word of God is that The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. And you are just a tenant in a vineyard. This is not your, you're a renter and it all belongs to him. What does that do in your heart? As you look at your family, as you look at your friends, as you look at your job, as you look at your life, how do you respond to the word of God? Is there violence against God in your heart where you push it away, you alienate, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, Jesus is describing our sin here. Are there things in your life right now that you're saying, mine? I'll show up and I'll open my Bible and I'll go through the motions. There's things in the Bible that I'm okay with hearing, but there's certain things I don't want to hear. That's mine, God. And yet God is saying, no, it's mine. The word of God says it's mine. But notice how the parable continues. Verse 6 He had still one other. And so servant after servant after servant is killed over and over and over again. And yet there's one. Surely this one who he sends will not be killed and beaten. He will be able to assert the owner's rights. A beloved son. A son whom the owner has set his love upon. 
Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. They won't kill him. They'll listen to him. They'll understand that he has the same rights to the vineyard as I have. But notice, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. And instead of surrendering to the heir, notice what they want to do. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours, mine. God sends his son into the world who owns all things, who is the heir of all things, the one who will rule all things. And instead of respecting him, we say, we want to take from you all things. We want to take your inheritance and make it ours, your rule, your authority. We want it to be mine. In verse 8, and they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. It's even more violent with the son. They kill him. They destroy him. They toss him away, not even a respectable burial. And here, Jesus is talking about what will happen to himself, the beloved son that God has given all things to. He comes into the world. He comes to his own, but his own will not receive him. He comes into the world as light, but the world full of darkness will cast him out. And here he talks about what will happen as he, as right now Jesus is in Jerusalem, God's vineyard. And he will be beaten and he will be killed and he will be taken out and thrown on a trash heap outside of the city. Jesus is talking about the crucifixion, the height of our rejection, the height of our mind. You can't come into the world and tell us it's yours, Jesus. And the cross is the most vivid description of our sin where we say, no, it is mine, and we don't want your authority here. One of the things Jesus does here is he makes rejection of God personal in himself. That's what he describes here. Rejection of the Father is made personal in the Son. We have said mine. And we've messed this world up by claiming it's mine. We've destroyed God's vineyard, saying it's mine. And so God sends the Son into the world to repossess what is His. That's what we see when Jesus is, is performing signs and wonders and he's casting out demons and he's healing the sick. He is repossessing what is God's. He is speaking in the same way God created everything out of nothing. He said, let there be light. He spoke the world into existence. Now Jesus is coming back and he is speaking. He is laying claim to what is the Father's. He's repossessing it from the leasers who have made a a mess out of it. The tenants who have made a mess out of it. And when he is killed, it is a personal rejection of God that we all, in some sense, take part in. And even right now, there's a sense in which you are living in that sin when you are claiming mine. To live as an owner when you're just a renter is to still, is to be a thief is to rob. And if this is God's world that will be given to Jesus and you're claiming it's mine, you are a thief. The reality is the family you have is God's family and you are renting it from him. 
And you are to declare it is not yours, it is God's. And you are to cultivate fruit for his glory in your family. But when you say it's mine, you're not just generically sinning against a doctrine, a rule, some belief, some abstract thing that's out there. No, you are stealing personally from Jesus. You're saying, you can't have my family. It's mine. I will do with this family what I want. In your marriage, you are merely renting it for a time to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you step into that marriage and you say, this is about me, this is about getting what I want, you're stealing from Jesus who says, no, that's my marriage, and it is to cosmically declare the most important reality in the universe that I love my church, that the church is to submit and trust and respect uh, her groom, Jesus. When you, you say, no, it's mine. I will get what I want out of it. You think about your job. That's Jesus's job. And when you say, no, it's about my money, it's about my reputation, it's about what I can do here, you're stealing from Jesus because he says, no, it's mine. And he comes to lay claim of it. And it's, not, it's sin to do that, but it's also sin that is ruining your life and making you miserable. Because in all of these areas, you have a choice to make. You have a choice with your family, your marriage, your job, your recreation, your finance, you have a choice in all of those areas to say, am I going to get what I want and be fulfilled? Or is Jesus going to be glorified? And if your choice when you come to those things is mine, this is about me, you will be miserable. You will be like the little kid trying to get all the toys in. This is mine, this is mine, this is mine. Instead of no, God has given me these things to share his glory with others. And it's not about me being fulfilled and it resonating just on me. It is about Jesus. It is about bringing glory to Jesus. And here's the point. Even in times when you're unfulfilled, Jesus can still be glorified. To be truthful, to be frank, in the times when you're least fulfilled, usually is the time when Jesus is most glorified. When you're least fulfilled in these things, and yet he is glorified because you're saying these things don't bring me happiness, Jesus does. And that's what they've been given to you for. So don't rob Jesus of his glory. When it comes to your life, don't think you own the vineyard, you're merely renting it. And make much of the one who owns it. Notice the text continues. So what will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, we can answer that question. You send your son in to the vineyard and the renters kill him, the tenants kill him. What are you going to do? The answer is obvious. He's going to destroy the tenants. He will come and destroy the tenants. But notice this, give the vineyard to others. He's going to take it away from them. He's going to kill them and give it to others. Now this is a point here or the religious leaders are probably very, very confused. What is he talking about? And then he throws in Psalm 118, where he says, have you not read the scripture? And okay, scripture, they're leaning in because they know the scripture. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
he quotes from Psalm 118, where, where the king of God is being rejected. The people are rejecting God's king. And the psalmist says, but hold on. The king is the centerpiece of all things. How can the king be rejected? And then he begins to use temple imagery, the, the imagery of a building, the cornerstone. This was a stone, a foundation stone that, that not just a building rested upon, but it, it aligned everything with the building. Everything was built out from the cornerstone. It made everything in the building make sense. And the question in Psalm 18, they're rejecting the king. The king is the centerpiece of all things. How could you reject a cornerstone? The cornerstone is what makes all things fit together and work on the building. But the builders, notice, the builders rejected it. The foreman, when it showed up, said, no, we don't want the cornerstone. Take it out there and put it on the dump. Get rid of it. We don't want it. Now, He's pointing to himself as the cornerstone. He is the one that makes all things make sense. He is the one that makes the temple make sense. The temple was created for him, to point to him, to lead to him. He is the fulfillment of everything that goes on in the temple. And yet when he comes to the temple as the cornerstone, those who are running the temple said, no, just a broken down brick. Take him out. We don't want him. And they cast him aside. And so the religious leaders reject Jesus, the foundation. But notice the last part, verse 11. He says, this was the Lord's doing. So, so as we will see the events of the cross, we begin to think the, the religious leaders are doing this. But then Jesus wants to be very clear before we see it. No, it's the Lord's doing. God is doing something even in their rejection. And I was reading through Psalm 118 yesterday, and the verse that we like to sing and quote so often is in there. It says, this is the day the Lord has made. And, and we, we, maybe we've sang that song. I'm not going to sing it for you, even though I want to. Just natural reaction. This is the day. This is, yeah, that's the song. And we think, well, that's about going to church. I used to sing it when I would get to church. We would, we'd sing and we would clap. This is the day the Lord has made. Well, what is the day? The day Psalm 18 is talking about is the day Jesus was rejected and killed. That is the day the Lord had made. That Jesus would come to his own people and they would reject him and they would kill him. And it is a marvelous thing, but it was the Lord's doing. It was the Lord's plan. And so as the builders kill Jesus on Golgotha, as they take the most strategic piece of construction to the kingdom and they toss it out like a broken down block, we don't need it. God was doing something there. He began to build something new. Because outside of the city on Golgotha, the trash heap where the broken down brick is crushed, a promise emerges, a new temple, where not just the Jews, but the nations can have access to God by faith, through the cross, through Calvary, believing Jesus died for their sins, they have access to God, and there God begins to build a new temple that Peter says is living stones on the cornerstone through the death of Christ. 
they have access to God. And the book of Isaiah, as we read earlier, begins with God's vineyard being scorched to the ground. We saw his vineyard is producing wild grapes, which means idolatry. The people are chasing after idols. And so God tells Isaiah, I'm going to burn the vineyard to the ground. I'm going to come in and raise it down, bulldoze it, and there will be nothing left of my vineyard, Israel. I will mow it down. But then in the book of Isaiah, a promise begins to emerge. It will be mowed down to, to just one little, one little shoot, one little root. And he, looked at, he looked at the ground, he probably wouldn't even see it. Where is it? What are you talking about? And from that root, that little twig in the ground, a new vineyard would grow up. A new vineyard would begin to reproduce itself on the earth. And this is the promise Jesus is referring to when he says, I am the vine. I am the root that will be left after the vineyard is mowed down. And as you look at the cross, you're going to say, what is this, a criminal? What is this, a blasphemer? And Jesus is going to say, no, this is the root from which the vineyard will grow. Because if you believe in me, you become the branches. And this vineyard will begin to grow, not just in Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth. And here he is talking about the church that he has planted in the world that is his vineyard, that is growing to the nations, that is growing around the world. And it doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter your culture. When you turn from your sin and you turn to the vine, when you turn to Jesus by faith, you are grafted in to the kingdom. This is the promise he is talking about, that the rejection of the Messiah led to the Messiah's kingdom around the world and the nations. The nations are allowed in this temple. The nations are allowed to be a part of this vineyard. But here's the thing. This vineyard work is God's vineyard. It's not our vineyard. When you think about the nations hearing the gospel and believing the gospel, that's what God's doing in the world. And we can't begin to think it is our vineyard. We are tenants in the vineyard work to cultivate fruit that has been given to Jesus, to go to the nations and say, you can be grafted in if you believe in him. If you would turn from your sin and worship him, we go to the nations to give the glory due his name. Not restrict it to a place, but faith in a person who is Jesus, making disciples, witnessing, going, praying, sending to the nations. This is the vineyard work. We're tenants. This is what has been given to us. This is, this is who we are in the world to cultivate the vineyard right now that is growing to the ends of the earth. This is why the globe spins on its axis right now is so that Jesus might collect the fruit from around the world for himself. That's why we exist now, we, when we begin to think the vineyard is about us, we forget that. We begin to think church is about me. It's just an easy form of fellowship and entertainment. It's mine. It's my place of control. It's my place of power. No, the church exists to gather glory for Jesus from around the world. That's, that's why we exist. Ephesians 1 verse 21 says the church is the fullness of God who fills all in all. 
Meaning, Jesus sees himself incomplete until his whole church is gathered from the nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every race, every people, every culture will be gathered to him. That's why we exist. And so you and I have to ask the question, how are we using our time in the vineyard? We are renting this time. The years, the months, the hours, the minutes, they have been rented to you to gather fruit for Jesus from around the world. What are you doing with it? When Jesus comes to gather the nations, will you have any fruit to present him? Will we as a church have anything to give him? We won't if we're saying mine. You won't if you say the minutes, the hours, the days, the months, the years, they are mine. What can, what can I just suck dry from this life for me? You won't have anything to offer Jesus when he comes. If you're living mine. And notice what eventually happens, verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. Now, we are to laugh on the inside every time we see that because these are some highfalutin powerful leaders flaunting their glory around the temple and people are scared to death of them and yet mark comes in over and over but they're scared of the people that's why they won't make decisions that's why they won't lead that's why they won't kill jesus is they're scared and the only way that can flip is if jesus allows it notice for they perceived He had told the parable against them. After he quotes the scripture, they begin to look at one another and go, hold on. I think he's talking about us. I don't understand all the vineyards and the tenants and the beatings and all that. But but when he starts, I think he's talking about us. And I think he's claiming to be the cornerstone. And they want to arrest him. And they want to kill him. But what do they do? So they left him and went away. And they began to devise a plan to kill Jesus. And we're thinking, in that conversation, if you're just watching it, you go, okay, not much. It was getting really, really tense. Are they going to drag him away? Are they going to cancel him? What are they going to do? They're going to kick him out of the temple? What's going to go on? And Jesus just keeps teaching, and they go away. And you say, nothing happened. And yet something happened devastating happened in that moment because their sin was their judgment that they heard the word of God that they perceived it and walked away was a form of judgment on behalf of Jesus he allowed them to walk away he allowed them to go and carry out the plan to kill him and that is the judgment that Jesus allowed them to do it to fill the power The crowd's chanting, Hosanna. Then when they chant, crucify, that's going to make them feel great. As they see Jesus drugged through the streets of Jerusalem like an abused animal, beaten down to a bloody pulp, that's going to make them feel great. They're going to feel like they have power. Look what we did. It's going to feel freeing to them to humiliate Jesus. But remember, this was the Lord's doing. Jesus is allowing it as a form of judgment. Their sin is their judgment. 
It's not freedom, it's judgment. It's not power, it's judgment. And the same thing goes on in our life. So often our sin is our judgment. When you are determined to just do what you want to do, and you can hear sermons, and you can hear Bible studies, and and you can go from counselor to counselor to counselor to counselor to counselor, and, and you just want them to tell you what you want to hear, but you know it's sin, and you know it's wrong, and you just keep choosing it, and you just keep doing it. And you're, you're thinking, well, it, this is freeing to do what I want. I haven't been struck by lightning living my life. This is great. It's great. Nothing's happening to me bad. And so you sin, nothing happens. You sin again, nothing happens. You sin again, nothing happens. And yet you are walking in your judgment because every step in sin is judgment. The hidden internet history that you were allowed to gawk at for hours is a form of judgment. The choice to just be content in your marriage over and over and over again, whine, complain, grumble, is a form of judgment when you know it's wrong and you don't turn from it. To just keep walking in that judgment It is a form of judgment here to say, mine, this is my desire. It's not freedom. It's not power. It's judgment. And it should scare you to death when you wake up from it. And you should turn and say, no, it's not mine. This life isn't mine. These desires aren't mine. This time isn't mine. It is yours, Jesus. And you turn from it. You don't walk away from him. You don't walk into the judgment. You repent and you trust that the cross can forgive you of your sins, that his righteousness is all you need before him. And you turn from walking down the path of judgment and sin to the Savior. But don't keep walking. Don't keep walking thinking you're free it's a form of judgment and here's good news for all of us the most sinful act in human history led to the greatest grace in human history this most sinful act ever committed by men led to our greatest grace and fulfills God's purposes this was the Lord's doing in Acts 2 23 This Jesus, Peter says, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned it, the crucifixion. But then he turns to the religious leaders and says, you crucified him and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. What you did was in God's plan. And it was wicked. And you chose to sin. You chose this judgment. But God used it for his purposes at the cross so his people could be forgiven and the nations could be allowed in. God used it for his plan. God uses the worst sin to accomplish the greatest grace. And the same thing can happen in your life right now. You're thinking, mine. This life has been mine. And I've done some horrible things because I think mine. As severe as the guilt is... Your joy can be great in forgiveness. And those things come together at the cross. The severity of sin and the joy of forgiveness. And it is marvelous. And we can't explain it where mercy and justice kiss at the cross. And it is the Lord's doing that the most sinful act would lead to the greatest mercy. And you're saying here today, you don't know what I've done. 
You don't know the things that I've thought. You don't know the people I've hurt. You don't know the regrets that I have. Well, I do know this. Your worst sin is no worse than the cross, and your sin caused the cross. So that is your greatest sin. As you said here today, your greatest sin is the cross. Because it is on the cross, you were an accomplice. You, you were there with the tenants. Crucify him. Because you said, mine, my life is mine. And to forgive you of that, God had to send his son to die for your sin. Your greatest sin is the cross. And in that moment, it is your greatest grace. But worse than your greatest sin, the cross, today would be the greater sin of rejecting the cross. Don't leave today thinking, no, I'm a great sinner. He could never forgive me. Don't leave today thinking, oh, you don't know of the great sin that I'm guilty of because as you walk through the door, you will be guilty of an even greater sin and that is rejecting the cross. That is rejecting what Jesus has come. This was the Lord's plan to forgive you of your sin, of saying mine. When Jesus says, no, I will be punished for your sin. Jesus says to you about your sin, no, give it to me, mine. And he dies for your sin to say to him, no, no, mine. Because there's a day coming where God will allow you to say mine. This is his world, but there is a day coming where he will say, okay, you want your sin, it's yours. And the judgment will be yours too. You can say mine about the cross today. I've been crucified with Christ. Or you can say mine about your sin that you will be judged for forever. The choice is yours.